Amen. Well, let me invite you, if you would, to please turn to Genesis chapter 50, Genesis chapter 5-0. And if you don't have a Bible, there are many of them throughout the seats there in front of you, and it's going to be either page 41 or page 44, uh, depending on which copy uh, you have right there near you. So Genesis chapter 50, and uh, the title of the sermon, as you may see, God meant it for good. And we're looking at verses 15 through 21. And this passage today really summarizes and declares the message of the entire book of Genesis, as well as really the message of the entire Bible. We could, we could summarize it this way, God meant it for good. And this message is powerful, it is penetrating, and it is life transforming. So let's hear the word of our living God. I'm going to read verses 15 to 21, and then I'll lead us in prayer once again. But let's hear God's word. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is God's word. Let me lead us in prayer. Our sovereign and good Father in heaven, you've told us that your word is living and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that no creature is hidden from your sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of you to whom we must give account. Father, in light of these truths and with your word before us, may you please enable me in preaching and all of us in hearing to taste and to see that you are good. And that we might know and trust and extend your goodness in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, our lives in this world are indeed filled with warnings that are intended to protect us. We see warning labels on various household products, such as things that say harmful if swallowed. When we drive, of course, we see various signs and lights that warn us of danger ahead. 
children, your parents probably often warn you about things that they know could hurt or even kill you. And so they say such things as don't touch that hot stove or don't run into the street. We're very familiar with warnings intended to protect us. And God himself has given us many warnings in his word about the deadly dangers of sin. Dangers of rebelling against his good and his loving commandments. For instance, in the book of Numbers, chapter 32, verse 23, we hear this phrase, and of course there's a context to it, but you get the sense when the warning is, be sure your sin will find you out. We also hear a warning in the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, that says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So we hear these warnings intended to keep us from sin and from the deadly consequences of sin. But here's the question for us this morning. What do you do if you've ignored all of God's warnings And you've given yourself fully to sin in myriads of ways. And now, because of that, you're facing the consequences of your proud foolishness. What do you do? You've run full throttle into sin, but now it has found you out. And now you are reaping the devastating consequences of what you have sown in your evil, rebellious sin. Now, what do you do? What do you do with the consuming guilt and shame and fear that you now have before God and most likely have before others as well? Well, our text today brings us face to face with this question. This passage before us is a a word from God to those who are overwhelmed by and consumed with the crushing weight of guilt and fear before God and before other people. Guilt and fear because of real and undeniable evil sin. It's also God's word to any of you who perhaps have been deeply hurt, deeply crushed, and abused by the real and the undeniable evil sin of other people. All of this is bound up within the passage that we're looking at this morning. And maybe you've been bearing this weight and this pain for a short time. Maybe you've been bearing it for a long time. 10, 20, 30, 40, or even more years. But I want you to know, beloved, our text this morning is about facing and dealing with evil. Our own evil toward God, our evil often toward other people, and other people's evil toward us. And I'm here to tell you, God's Word is powerful. It is powerful. And if you hear and respond to God's word today, I want you to know if you've been carrying the weight and the burden 
of, of guilt and sin, either your own or of others, or maybe a combination of both, if you hear and respond to God's Word today, you can leave this room free, free of that burden that you've maybe been carrying. And let me just say up front what the, what the big idea, what the main truth of the text that we're looking at this morning is. In many ways, it's captured in the title, God Meant It For Good. But we can expand that just a little bit and say it this way. Here's what this passage is all about. God sovereignly ordains and uses evil people in order to bless and save evil people. Let me say it again. God sovereignly ordains and uses evil people in order to bless and save evil people. People. Again, in short, God meant it for good. And so, in this gripping and emotional scene that we find between Joseph and his brothers, what we see here is a request, and then we see a response. And this request and this response really reveal to us two sides of reality. With the request, we see the human side of reality. That's what we're going to see in verses 15 to 18. And then with the response expressed from Joseph, we really see the divine side of reality. And that's what we find in verses 19 to 21. And so again, a request, the human side, verses 15 to 18. And then a response, the divine side in verses 19 to 21. Now let me give fair warning and a word of encouragement for all of us about the application of this text. As I've mentioned and alluded to, it is penetrating. You see, this isn't just a powerful and compelling story from history about mercy and reconciliation. It is that, but it's much more. It's the living God speaking to us now through His Word calling each and every one of us to experience and to extend and imitate His goodness and His mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, He's calling us to taste and see that He is good and that the one who takes refuge in Him is blessed, as David says in Psalm 34, verse 8. God, through this text, is calling us to know and trust him who is sovereign and who ordains and uses evil people in order to bless and save evil people. He's calling us to receive and to extend his goodness and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so be thinking and even be praying, Lord, what do you say to me today? What is it that you have for me today in this text? Well, let's move into it. First of all, with this request from Joseph's brothers. The human side in verses 15 to 18, which really expresses and and bears testimony to all of mankind's condition, namely being broken, trembling, and humble before God. Broken, trembling, and humble before God, and ultimately seeking forgiveness. So we see in this request, the human side, mankind's condition, broken, trembling confession. 
Now, I want you to notice in verses 15 to 18, there's at least four different parts or four different features that we can see of this confession, of this request of Joseph's brothers to Joseph that help us understand something about the nature of true confession, the nature of true brokenness for sin. First of all, we see what I would call legitimate, irrational fear. Legitimate, irrational fear. Now that may seem like an oxymoron, and indeed in one sense it is, but I think you'll see it. We see this in verse 15. When we read, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Now there's a sense for these brothers at this point that their fear is legitimate. They are acutely aware of the guilt of what they had perpetrated some 39 years earlier. And we won't take time to look at the details of it, but you can read about it in Genesis chapter 37. They hated Joseph. The next to the youngest of 12 brothers, they absolutely hated him to such a degree they couldn't even talk to him without blowing him away with their words. They hated him. They were jealous of him because he was favored of his father. And there's a lot of dynamics that were going on there. Certainly some immaturity on the part of 17-year-old Joseph at that time. Certainly a lack of wisdom on the part of his father for showing favorites among his children. But nonetheless, they hated him. And they wanted to murder him. They wanted to kill him. And at the last minute, they decide not to kill him. They sell him into slavery. He goes down into Egypt. He's there the rest of his life. Well, in God's providence, there's a lot of events that unfold between chapter 37 and chapter 50. And in God's providence, God raises up Joseph to come to a place of second in command in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. And it's because of that that even though Joseph has been reunited and reconciled to his brothers now some 17 years prior to this event now in chapter 50, Even though he's expressed a sense of forgiveness and reconciliation, the guilt and the shame and the fear is still very real in their lives. And now that dad is gone, now that dad has died, and they know that Joseph is literally the second most powerful man in the entire world, there's a legitimacy to their fear that, okay, he's going to pull the trigger and seek revenge on us now for all the the harm, all the evil that we brought on him. So there's a sense of it being legitimate, but it's also irrational because of all that Joseph had already communicated to them and done for them, beginning, again, some 17 years earlier. And in Genesis chapter 45 is where we read about this event of Joseph revealing himself to to his brothers through a series of providential events that God had orchestrated, that God had designed. Joseph reveals himself to them, and at that time he speaks kindly to them. He assures them that even though they had done evil and sent him to Egypt in that sense, it was God all along who was doing this. And so there's an irrationality to their fear because Joseph has been nothing but kind and gracious and caring and providing for them. And yet because of the the multiplying sense of guilt and shame and fear, they have paranoia that they're really experiencing 
And so this is the first aspect that's prompting their confession and their desire for forgiveness is legitimate, irrational fear. We see, second of all, what I would call inescapable guilt. They knew and they understood and they didn't whitewash their guilt. There's no blame shifting in what they say. There's a full acknowledgement of their evil. And just notice at the end of verse 15 and then through verse 17, how they speak of it repeatedly. They say, it may be that Joseph will hate us, pay us back for all the evil, there it is, that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the transgression. Now, each one of these terms speak of different aspects of their wrongdoing. It was evil. It was transgression. It was sinful. And so they paint a full, accurate, complete picture of their undeniable guilt. And even though many years had passed now, 39 years from when they perpetrated these acts, it is as still, still as real in their minds as, it, as if it had happened yesterday. Perhaps it's become more real because the passage of time only magnifies the, the horror and the ugliness of their guilt. But notice with this, as I mentioned, there's no blame shifting. They're not blaming dad. They're not blaming Joseph. They're not blaming their circumstances or anybody or anything else. They're not minimizing their sin. They're not justifying their sin. They're not excusing it. They're not trying to bargain their way out of it. They're calling it what it is. Sin and evil and transgression. Their sin had found them out. Well, the third aspect of their confession is a singular plea. We see their legitimate, irrational fear, their inescapable guilt, and a singular plea. What is it? Please forgive us. Please forgive us. And so we see in verses 16 and 17, they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Now, there's debate among scholars about whether or not Jacob, Joseph, and the brother's father actually said this. It seems likely that they're probably lying about this. We don't know for sure, but there's no other record of this conversation taking place. We're not for sure. One way or the other, it doesn't seem to bring to bear in how Joseph responds, which is interesting in and of itself. He saw beyond it. But let's assume that they are lying. They certainly had a history of lying. They were known as liars, deceivers, manipulators. So it's possible that they're, they're trying to play on what they knew was the deep affection between Joseph and his dad. And saying, hey, by the way, dad said you really need to forgive us. So, so please make sure that you do that. that. That's very possible. But beyond that issue, what's important to note is that they realize their only hope is if Joseph forgives them. They have no other hope. They have no other resources. As I said, they're, they're not minimizing their sin. They're not justifying it, excusing it, blaming it on anybody. They are guilty. The only hope is forgiveness, is a, is a wiping of the slate, is a canceling of the debt, 
is an assurance that Joseph is not going to use his powerful position to come down on them in what we might see as very justifiable revenge. Their only hope is a plea for forgiveness. So again, whether or not they're being deceptive in what they're saying, the heart of the issue is they're saying, would you please forgive us for what we've done? Well, the passage then goes on to tell us that after this, Joseph weeps. And so we read there in verse 17, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now, we've seen in other passages in the earlier parts of this whole uh, story between Joseph and his brothers and Jacob and all of this, he was a very emotional man. He wept on a number of occasions. In fact, back in chapter 45, when he first reveals himself to his brothers and, 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 and exposes who he is, and they're, they're dumbfounded that all of a sudden he's here again after all of these years, he weeps on them. We've seen other places where he weeps, and and now he weeps as they plead for forgiveness in acknowledging their sin. And of course, we ask the question, well, why was he weeping? What was it that triggered the tears for Joseph? And the text doesn't tell us specifically, but we can assume that there's a mixture of reasons why he's weeping. He loved his brothers, and that's evident by what we see in the earlier parts of the story. So possibly because of the distressing and burdensome guilt and fear that his brothers had carried all these years, let alone the 22 years that took place between when they sold Joseph into uh, slavery in Egypt and then when he revealed himself, that was a period of 22 years, but then from that point to now is another 17 years, so for 39 years. That's a long time. That's a lot longer than some of you are old, right? (laughs) It's a long time they're carrying this guilt, this fear, and this shame. So he loved them. And he was grieved, no doubt, that they carried this for so long. And, and I think this seems like probably the most dominant reason, because when he does respond to them, what does he say at the beginning and at the end of his response? He says, do not fear. He understood they were afraid. And so He's grieving, perhaps in part, because he's burdened for the burden that they're carrying. And let it be said at this point, too, please understand, time does not erase guilt. These brothers were guilty, and they had carried this for all these years. In fact, time didn't, it only doesn't erase guilt, it it intensifies it. Because as time goes on, you begin to see the fullness of your sin ever more clearly. And the nature of it. And perhaps that's what's happening with these brothers. So he's grieving probably for that. He's probably grieving also because they didn't trust and rest in the forgiveness and the comfort and the provision uh, that he had expressed to them 17 years earlier, back in chapter 45. He felt they were falling short of receiving what he wanted to give them and wanted them to taste and enjoy. He might be grieving partly also because of of possibly their lie about what their father had said, that they're reverting back to their old ways, and that's maybe grieving him. 
But ultimately, it's also likely that he was grieving because for the first time in all the years that Joseph had known them, this is the very first time we have a record of them actually confessing their sin to him. And in their confession, they're also confessing that they are servants of the God of Joseph's fathers. father. They're saying, we're trusting the same God you're trusting. This is the first time we have record of them acknowledging that. Perhaps that's contributing to the tears as well. But one way or the other, we catch a sense of the emotion. Can you imagine 39 years of guilt and of shame and of fear just just exploding like a fire hydrant? And Joseph is brought to tears again. Well, then we see the fourth part, the fourth feature of their confession in verse 18. And I'll call it humble contrition. Humble contrition. So we read in verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. You get the sense of the scope of the honesty and the depth of their confession. It ends with this humble contrition of saying, we don't deserve anything. We're pleading for forgiveness. Please let us just be your slaves, is in essence what they're saying. So what are they doing and what do we see here? (laughs) There's no sense of demand. There's no sense of entitlement that we deserve this or we deserve that. There's none of that. There's this humble, broken contrition that says we deserve nothing but to be your slaves. There's no accusations against Joseph. They're all older than Joseph, except for Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother. They're all older than him. They could have said, you know, Joseph, when you were 17 years old, when all that stuff happened, I mean, we shouldn't have done it. But man, you were kind of an obnoxious punk. You know, you really provoked us. They could have said that. They would have been wrong. They would have been wrong. And so we see the nature of true confession, which, which reveals to us our human condition, where there's legitimate but often irrational fear because God is so kind and so gracious, and yet He is God, and we do stand in accountability before Him. We also see the sense of inescapable guilt. Who of us can claim perfection in our thoughts, in our affections, in our desires, in our words, in our actions? We're as guilty as anybody. Maybe haven't done the exact same things Joseph's brothers did, but maybe we have in various ways. But we're guilty before God. We have no plea but for forgiveness. And we have no reaction before God. We ought to have no reaction except humble contrition. Makes me think of the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, right? Where the son wants all the father's wealth and he goes away to a distant country. He wants what the father can give, but he doesn't want the father. So he goes away to a distant country, lives it up, and ultimately ends up poor and impoverished and feeding on the food that pigs eat. eat. And finally he comes to his senses and he decides he's going to return to the father And he's going to say to the Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Humble contrition. No demands, no entitlement, no accusations, just humble contrition. 
So what does that mean for you and me as we see this picture of our human condition before God Almighty? Well, it means that we should believe and confess our sin. Believe and confess our sin. In other words, in faith, receive God's blessings in Christ through confession of your sin. Receive God's blessings in Christ through confession of your sin. And this means, just as we see evidenced in the lives of Joseph's brothers, honest, full confession before God, and flowing from that, honest and full confession to those that you have specifically sinned against. We need to always keep short accounts with God and with those that we have sinned against. I could say it this way, just maybe in a little little bit of a rhyme to help us remember it. Think of it like this. God sovereignly blesses the one who truly confesses. God sovereignly blesses the one who truly confesses. God is ever seeking to expose and to forgive and to cleanse and to restore guilty and fearful sinners. Remember what God did with Adam and Eve in the garden back in Genesis chapter 3 after they committed unbelievable wickedness and evil by rebelling against the good God who had created them that brought sin into humanity? What happened? They became ashamed. They realized they were naked. They were afraid. They're hiding from God. And what does God do? He seeks them out in order to destroy them? No. In order to love them and to provide for them and to help them understand their sin, but then that they might look to Him. And so He clothes them when they can't clothe themselves. And that sets in motion what we see not only throughout the rest of Genesis, but throughout the rest of the Bible, that God seeks to save sinners. That God even uses the sinfulness of people, even ordains the sinfulness of people in a way that doesn't get us off the hook, but He uses it all in His sovereign wisdom in order to save sinners. What man meant for evil, even as Adam and Eve meant it for evil when they rebelled against God, God means for good. And so I would ask you, have you humbled yourself before God in full, specific, humble, broken confession and repentance? Where you're not justifying, you're not minimizing, you're not blaming, you're not bargaining, you're not demanding, you're not expressing a sense of entitlement, you're just pleading for forgiveness. You're like the the tax collector in Luke chapter 18 who's just beating his chest before God saying, be merciful to me, a sinner, and confessing your sins to God. We won't take time to go there, but Psalm 32 presents a beautiful picture of David bearing testimony to the blessedness of forgiveness for the one who finally confesses his sin to God. And David there talks about his own experience of, of trying to hide his sin and hide his, his, his rebellion from God. It caused him to waste away physically. He felt the effects in his body of, of not confessing sin. But finally he confesses his sin. And it's in that psalm that he says, God, you are my hiding place. No longer is he hiding from God. 
He's hiding in God. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. And even as Sam read earlier from 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and the whole context of that promise in chapter 1 and into chapter 2 is the fact that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. Christ is to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. And the means of that forgiveness comes through the very blood of Christ. So have you confessed? Have you humbled yourself before God in full and specific and humble confession? And then related to that, I would ask this question as well. Have you humbly confessed your sin and sought to reconcile with anyone and everyone that you've sinned against with your words, with your actions, and with your attitudes? Maybe things as recent as yesterday or even this morning But maybe things 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 39 years ago, whatever it may be, if there's anything at all that you need to confess to another because of ways that you've sinned against them, you need to do that. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24, if you're presenting your offering there before the altar, if you're going to worship and there you remember that someone has something against you, he says, leave your offering at the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. And so we need to confess our sins to those that we sin against. Friends, enemies, workers, co-workers, bosses, employees, neighbors, spouses, parents with children, children with parents, neighbors, we could go on down the line. There's a right place of confessing our sin and seeking the forgiveness of others, flowing from having dealt with all of our sin before God. Well, friends, this is the human side that we see in verses 15 to 18, a picture of mankind's sinful condition requiring broken, trembling confession before God and others. And confession that's marked by legitimate, irrational fear, undeniable guilt, a singular plea, and humble contrition. So then we ask the question, well, how does God respond to such brokenness and confession? And this is what we see in the next side here in Joseph's response to his brothers and or to his brothers. And here's the divine side in verses 19 to 21, abundant and overflowing compassion, abundant and overflowing compassion. And Joseph responds as he does to his brothers because he knew and he trusted God. And I want you to notice three truths that Joseph knew and trusted about God. Three truths which absolutely governed his response to his brothers. So here they are. First of all, Joseph knew God's absolute authority. He knew And he trusted and submitted to God's absolute authority. That's what we see in verse 19. Joseph says to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? It's a rhetorical question. The answer, no. Now, if anybody maybe had a claim to power and authority, again, Joseph was the second most powerful man in the world at the time. He had massive authority, massive power. But he was humble enough to understand, I'm not in the place of God. 
So Joseph knew and he trusted and he submitted to God's absolute authority. For so many of us, we just constantly need to be reminded of that, don't we? Especially when other people sin against us. Even though what they do is grievous, we're not God. And we need to ever be reminded of that. Well, the second truth that Joseph knew is that he knew God's good, life-giving sovereignty. He knew God's good, life-giving sovereignty, and he trusted in it, and he rested in God's good, life-giving sovereignty. Look at verse 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. So he's acknowledging their guilt. He's acknowledging what they did. He's acknowledging all of it. And he's acknowledging their motivation. You meant to do this. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't just a slip of the tongue. This wasn't just something that somehow randomly happened to you because of a weird series of events. No, you meant to do what you did to me. But what does he say? But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, if we go back to chapter 45, which we won't take time to do it, but when Joseph first reveals himself 17 years earlier now to his brothers, he says to them emphatically, it wasn't you that sent me to Egypt. It was God that sent me to Egypt. It was God that sent me to Egypt. It was God that sent me to Egypt. He understood and he trusted and he rested in God's good life-giving sovereignty. He understood something of God's saving purposes to preserve not only him, but his whole family. And ultimately, in so doing, God was preserving his promised plan through that family that would carry on to come to fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he trusted God's sovereignty. He trusted what Paul would declare in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that in all things, God works together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And the good there is to be conformed to Christ, to, to come to know and, and to be conformed to the fullness of all that Christ is. But Paul says, everything works together for good. Suffering, trials, hardship, and that's what Joseph understood and is exemplifying here. A radical, absolute trust in God's good and life-giving sovereignty. It's that very sovereignty that the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2, which was read earlier in our service, that's what Peter is preaching from. And he's preaching to the very people who had killed, who had murdered the Lord Jesus. And he's looking them in the face, he's looking them in the eye, and he's in essence saying, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And you can be saved even though you murdered the Lord Jesus. You can still be saved. And that's why he appeals to them and pleads with them to, to be saved. And many were. And many were. It's about God's good life-giving sovereignty. Joseph knew and trusted that. And then a third truth, a third reality he trusted about God was he knew God's rich, overflowing mercy. Because he knew that God was the one in absolute authority, because he knew that God was good in his life-giving sovereignty, he also could then know and, and extend God's rich, overflowing mercy. So this is what we find, verse 21. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. 
What an amazing passage. It's very interesting in this entire story, if we went all the way back to chapter 37 where it begins, very early in chapter 37 we read that the brothers' hatred for Joseph was so intense they couldn't even speak kindly to him. So there's a bit of divine, poetic wonder as we now hear Joseph, the one that they had sought to destroy, doing what? Speaking kindly to them, comforting them, assuring them that they had nothing to fear, that he would continue to provide for them. Makes me think of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 20 when he's risen from the dead and he first appears to his disciples for the first time after he's now risen from the dead. And we know that these disciples had all abandoned him. Peter had denied him. Everybody had run for the hills. They all had choked in the moment of need. And you know what's the first words that he says to them? I've said this many times. Peace be with you. And that wasn't just a customary greeting, though it was, but it had a whole new world of meeting because he had accomplished that peace for them, between them and God, between them and him, by the shedding of his own blood. Words of comfort, words of assurance, words of love. Yes, you meant evil, but I know that God meant it for good. And so let me just comfort you. Let me assure you. Let me express kindness to you. And so what this means for us is the earlier part in, our, in the first part, we see our condition, our need to believe and confess. Here our need is to believe and do what? To forgive. To believe and forgive. To extend God's blessings in Christ with compassion toward fellow sinners, especially those who have been evil, cruel, and hurtful to, toward you. That's where it gets tested. That's where it is seen, to extend such forgiveness. And so I would ask, are you trusting God's good sovereignty? Are you trusting that what anyone meant for evil against you in your life, both in just the general sense of an evil world that we live in, and we're all affected by the evil in the world, not only in that general sense, but maybe personally. And there are real evils, real heinous things that people have done to one another, as we all know and have experienced to varying degrees. And yet, nonetheless, can you trust God's sovereign purposes and goodness even in it? And look to Him. And then in trusting God's sovereignty, the next question is this. Have you fully forgiven from your heart those who have sinned against you in any way whatsoever? Have you fully forgiven from your heart those who have sinned against you in any way whatsoever? And please recognize, as it was with Joseph, this doesn't mean that we ignore or that we minimize or excuse or justify anyone's sin against it. Rather, we call it what it is, even as Joseph did, And yet in trusting God and in trusting God's authority, God's providence, God's goodness, God's love, God's purposes, we fully forgive and we comfort and we assure and we speak kindly. You remember, I'm sure, it's a part of the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, not as a mechanical formula, but as a a heartbeat, as a disposition of prayer. Part of that prayer in Matthew chapter 6 is what? Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. 
later in Matthew's gospel in chapter 18, when Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times, which Peter is thinking is a, is a great number. Jesus says, no, 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 70 times seven. And he's not meaning 490. He's meaning you forgive as often as you need to forgive. He's speaking in hyperbole. And then he tells a story, doesn't he? Tells a story about a, a servant who owed an astronomical, insurmountable amount of money to his master. And the master was going to throw him into prison, but the man pleads for forgiveness. He pleads for the cancellation of his debt. The master grants it. And then what does the servant do? He goes out and finds one of his fellow servants who owes him what would amount to just maybe a few bucks, and he won't forgive him. And the point of the story is, listen, if you've been forgiven much, you need to forgive much. And Jesus says, unless you do so, as he then punished this servant who offended his master by not showing the same kind of forgiveness that he had given, he says, unless you forgive your brother from your heart, you'll experience the same from the Lord. And so we need to forgive. Paul said it this way in the book of Ephesians, uh, beginning in chapter 4, verse 30, I'll read into chapter 5. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't make the Holy Spirit weep, as it were. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us, loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And I hope you see, beloved, in these events that we read of in Genesis, Genesis 50, do you not uh, see how what happens between Joseph and his brothers pictures and anticipates what happens between God and people in the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Joseph was hated. His brothers wanted to destroy him, and they wanted to kill him at the last minute. They send him down, down, down into Egypt. When he's in Egypt, he gets falsely accused by his master's wife, and he gets thrown down, down, down into prison. And this imagery of just going down, down, down is present. But what happens in God's timing? God raises him up, up, up into this position of power and influence and, and, and blessing and benefit in a way that ends up blessing and saving his family, including his brother's. And that's such a picture of what God does in the Lord Jesus Christ. Though we hated the Lord, though we rebelled against the Lord, though our own sinful inclination is one of, God, I don't need you, I'll do it on my own. That's the heart of wickedness and evil. God sent his own eternal son, Jesus, down, down, down to earth. He lived a perfectly righteous life. He died a sacrificial death. He went down, down, down into the grave. But what did God do? God raised him up, up, up so that he can bring salvation to any and all. And if you question the love of God, look to the cross. If you question whether or not you can be saved from heinous sin that you've committed, look to how God proclaims the hope of the gospel to the very ones who killed his own son, as we see in Acts 2 and we see elsewhere throughout Scripture. God's grace is abundant. His mercy is more, as a song that we often sing declares. And so, beloved, this story is a story of real life, of real sin, but of a real God who gives real grace and real mercy in Christ.
And I'll close with this. The story's told about an elderly pastor to whom God gave marvelous ability to minister to the sick and to the distressed of his congregation. And this old pastor had a bookmark which he carried with him in his Bible. And it was made of silk threads woven into a motto on one side of the bookmark. And on the back of it were the ends of the threads. They were all knotted and and tied into a hopeless, tangled mess. And whenever he would visit a home in which there was some great trouble, maybe there's grievous sin that had gone on or sorrow or death, and at a time when the people there were puzzling and perplexed about what God was doing in their lives, he would often show them this bookmark. And he would first present the side with all of the tangle of threads and let them see that mess of a tangling of threads. But then when the perplexed person looked at it in vain, the pastor would turn it over. And on the front side, standing out in beautiful colored threads against a white background were the words, God is love. God is love. You see, that's the way it is in life. Sin and circumstances bring about events in our lives, even our own sin, that often seem tangled and meaningless. But they appear that way only when we're looking at the human side of things. But when we look at God's side, the divine side, from knowing Jesus and knowing all that God's revealed in his word, we see that God is love. And what man meant for evil, God meant for good. He sovereignly ordains and uses evil people in order to bless and to save evil people just like you, just like me. So let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even as we see it so richly displayed in these events with Joseph and his brothers, we know that's just a foretaste. It's just an anticipation of what you've revealed and accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may each of us know your grace, your blessing, your saving power in fullest measure, that we might rejoice in you and praise you, and that we might extend that same grace and blessing to others. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.